if you have uh, your Bibles, open them with me again to uh, the book of Philemon. Uh, it's going to be in the, the latter portion of the New Testament, uh, just before the letter to the Hebrews. So as you're, as you're opening there, if you notice that legal appeals uh, are very common uh, here in the United States, we are a very... Uh, litigious society. We love lawsuits, uh, especially in California, which is one of the reasons I'm glad to be out of California. Uh, but we, we are most familiar with this concept of an appeal uh, in the legal context. Uh, and uh, we are most familiar with appeals to the Supreme Court. Right? The Supreme Court is the highest court uh, in America. There's no higher authority when it comes to legal issues. Uh, and each year there are about 7,000 cases that are appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, the court is not able to, I guess, come to a, a verdict or review all 7,000 of those. So they usually, of those 7,000, they whittle that down to about 100 or 150 uh, and then from there, they will review those court cases throughout the year and then deliver uh, verdicts on those appeals. Sometimes they send them back down to lower courts. Sometimes they, they'll issue uh, a final decision. Uh, and so each year in the month of June, before they recess for the summer, uh, they usually announce uh, a whole lot of verdicts on uh, pending cases throughout that year. And so this next uh, few days in June, or today's June 3rd, so we got 27 days left, uh, the court is going to announce verdicts on 29 cases. Uh, so they have their, their work cut out for them. So, uh, and there's some big cases that are, that are coming up. So as in the coming days, you will hear uh, news about these appeals that have been made to the Supreme Court uh, for the rest of this month. And those are going to have some big uh, impacts upon our day-to-day lives uh, and uh, pending in the future. Uh, now, appeals are, are, are most common in the legal world. But I would also say that appeals should be common in our lives as Christians. Now, this should be a, a regular uh, occurrence. And so what do I mean by that? Well, uh, an appeal is uh, a serious or urgent request that is made to someone in particular or to the public in general. You, you make an appeal, uh, and we are called to appeal to one another as Christians uh, to encourage one another to pursue Christ, to, to flee from sin, uh, to, to battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil who are always waging war against our hearts and trying to draw us away from Christ and into just being entangled with things of this world. They want to draw us away from Christ, and we must battle and encourage one another to pursue Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that we are to be encouraging one another as long as it's called today. He also says, Hebrews 10, uh, verses 23 through 25, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, Without wavering, for he who promised a faith is who he, he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You ever think about we are every single day closer and closer to the return of Christ, and as that day draws nearer and nearer, what are we supposed to be doing? 
we are to be encouraging one another to love and good deeds, to be in fellowship with one another so that we might glorify Christ when he returns. Uh, that is what we are supposed to be doing and appealing to one another, encouraging one another. The scripture also says that as Christians, we should be appealing to the world. One of my favorite verses and the reason that we are ambassador Bible fellowship comes from 2 Corinthians 5.20, which says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here scripture says we should be appealing and encouraging to one another and that we should be appealing to the world to be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Appeals should be a regular part of our lives. But I would venture to say that not many of us enjoy making an appeal to somebody else. We don't like wake up in the morning excited. Oh, I get to appeal to this person. I get to go have a really difficult conversation uh, and talk with them about something that I don't want to talk about. Because usually when an appeal is needed, it means that a situation is is dire. There's some urgency. Uh, there, there's some difficulty. There's potential consequences in a situation if we need to make an appeal to somebody. And when we do have to make an appeal, and we will all have to do it at some time or have already done it at some time, we often struggle to know what to say and how to say it. How do I bring this up? How do I make this appeal in a God-honoring way? Appeals are usually needed in the middle of conflict, when someone has sinned against you or you have sinned against someone else. Now, you know, Someone has sinned against you and you're going to, to appeal to them just for them to understand what took place and to, to ask, hey, can we resolve this? Uh, or if you've sinned against someone else, those are the most fun appeals to make, to go and ask somebody else to forgive you for a sin that you have committed against them. Those are the most humbling of appeals, appealing to somebody, uh, asking them to forgive you for a sin that you have committed against them. Appeals can also be necessary uh, when sin is taking place, not necessarily against you. It might be that somebody is is wandering from Christ. This is that Hebrews chapter 3. They could be rejecting Christ altogether, at which point we're called to go and, and make an appeal to them. Please don't turn from Jesus. And, and really, the letter to the Hebrews is a huge appeal to a group of people who were contemplating going back to Judaism. They, they had come to Christ, and then when they were facing persecution, they said, hey, maybe this isn't all that I thought it was uh, going to be. Maybe I should go back to what I used to, to do. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, please don't. The whole letter is an appeal for them to cling to Christ. And when sometimes when we have to make that appeal to somebody who is either rejecting Christ completely and wandering away, or they are giving in to a particular sin that has enticed them, uh, that sin has caught them on the fishing line, so to speak, and we are going to appeal to them and say, hey, please, please don't continue to to sin in this way because I know that it's going to pull you away from Christ. I know it's going to lead you down a path that you don't want to go to. Either way, whether they're they're rejecting Christ completely, whether it's just a, another sin in their life, the, a heartfelt appeal is what we are called to make to them. Now, appeals can also be made to to somebody who is in authority over us. Maybe that person has a, made a decision that we disagree with, uh, and we would rather than rebelling outright against their decision, the right thing to do uh, is to go and say, hey, I know you've said this, but can you think about this over here? What about this option? Uh, 
Uh, and uh, anybody who is under authority needs to understand how to make an appeal just for this. We all ha- may have to have a conversation with uh, our boss. Teens, if you have something to, to bring up to your parents, this is how you would do it. You would go and make a uh, an appeal that would honor the Lord and say, Hey, Mom and Dad, I know you've said this, but can we please rethink that? Uh, you, you need to learn how to make an appeal uh, and have a discussion. And then also with our spouses. Uh, sometimes as husband and wife, we can entrench our feet in a certain position and say, well, I'm not moving. And when both of us do that, we're not going anywhere, right? Uh, but So we need to understand, hey, how do I go and make a, a godly appeal to my husband, to my wife, so that we can resolve this conflict so we're no longer at this standstill and butting heads constantly? We need to understand that. And then... At other times, an appeal can be made to someone who knows what they should do, but this is a, this is big. They know what they should do, but it's going to be difficult for them to act in obedience. And we can make an appeal to them to do the right thing. Say, hey, you know what to do. Continue in faith. Uh, respond in a Christ-honoring way. And this is usually when, when a serious sin has been committed against a believer. We know as believers that we are called to forgive others as we have been forgiven. But knowing what we should do, does that make it any easier? No. Uh, it's, it's still so hard to entrust ourselves back to somebody who has sinned against us. And it is this last type of appeal that's being made in the letter to Philemon. Okay, Philemon is uh, a slave owner who has had a slave steal from him and run away. That's a, that's a big, uh, sin. Slaves were like somebody uh, in your home to, to rob you. We don't know how much was taken from him. Uh, and then run away would have been at great financial cost to Philemon. And Paul is writing to pers- encourage Philemon to receive back his slave who has run away. Uh, and as we, as we read this letter, this letter is so important because it teaches us how to make an appeal. It, it teaches us what we need to learn about, hey, what does a God-honoring appeal look like? Because as I mentioned, we will all need to make an appeal at some point, at some time, to someone. And we need to make note of it as we study this here. Uh, this, As I mentioned, this letter was written to Philemon. Onesimus, had his runaway slave, had stolen from him and then gone to, to Rome. Now, hoping for a new life. It's easy to get lost in a big city. Uh, and Onesimus s- stole enough goods and, and money to, to make it, you know, a thousand miles away to Rome where he was hoping to, to start a new life as a runaway. But rather than starting an, a new life as a runaway, another type of new life took place. And he, he found the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul shared the gospel with him and he believed and received Christ. So no, now he's not having a new life as a runaway, but he is experiencing new life in Christ. Uh, but this new life has obligations. And one of the things that being a Christian involves, one of the obligations upon us is to submit to every human authority. We don't get to rebel against humans and then say, well, I'm submissive to God. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul understands, hey, Onesimus, you're going to have to go back and reconcile with your master. 
We're going to have to go back at some point. And we're not sure of the laws at this particular time in Rome. We know that earlier uh, in the first century BC, there were laws that, that mandated that runaway slaves had to be returned to their masters. Not exactly sure if that was the law or if Paul was under that here, but if he was, then he would have had to obey that law. Say, okay, let me send you back. Uh, let me send you back to your believing master. You are a believer now. Let's go and pursue reconciliation. And so Paul is writing this letter of appeal to Philemon to do something that is really difficult, uh, to receive back someone who has sinned against you. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. Uh, part of a, a paragraph, the, the first body paragraph uh, in this letter. Uh, and as we uh, as we read these verses, we're going to see Paul announcing the purpose of the letter. As I said, it's, it's to appeal. And he's going to mention uh, the word appeal twice in verses 8 through 10. Right? He's going to say, hey, I'm, I'm appealing to you. And he's going to say it again, I appeal to you on behalf of Onesimus. So the, the big point of this letter uh, is to pursue reconciliation. It's to uh, to come alongside. The word for uh, appeal means literally coming alongside and calling to. Uh, elsewhere, it's translated as to, to urge or exhort or to implore somebody. Uh, you're, you're begging them on someone else's behalf. That's what Paul is doing here. So let's let's look at verses 8 through 14 and read them together. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And as we look at these these verses this morning, as we look at this appeal, we'll see that there is so much for us to learn. Because as I said, it's 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 only a matter of time before we have to make an appeal to somebody else. Maybe a, a, a spouse, a boss, a teen who's in rebellion, a parent you disagree with. You're, you're going to have to make an appeal to somebody. And this is one of the uh, these skills and the knowledge that you don't need it until you really need it. Uh, and in that moment, if you don't already know it, you, you, you don't have time to then go learn the skills in that moment. It's like you need it. So this is something that you have to, I guess, put in your bank account. You, you got to have it in there so that you can make that withdrawal when the time is necessary. You have to have this in your back pocket so that you might be able to bring it out whenever it is necessary. Whenever somebody is wandering away from Christ, whenever there is conflict that has arisen, you need to know how to make an appeal. But what are the characteristics of a God-honoring appeal? We have to know them ahead of time. What we're going to see this morning is four characteristics, four essentials of a God-honoring appeal that we must put into our memory bank so that we can understand and embrace these essentials so that we can be effective peacemakers and ambassadors for Christ. So as we look at these four essentials, essential number one, that a godly appeal approaches in love rather than power. And we see this in verses 8 and then the first part of verse 9. Look back with me. 
It says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. So what, what Paul is saying there, he's acknowledging on the one hand, hey, I have the authority. If I wanted to, Philemon, I could just say, hey, you need to do this. I'm an, I'm an apostle. I have, uh, as an apostle with a capital A, Paul had authority from Christ. God, God was using him to establish churches throughout uh, the, the Near East and Europe. And Paul had this authority, but he willingly laid that aside in this situation. To say, you know what, I'm not going to come at you as an apostle. I'm going to come at you as a friend. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of our friendship, on the basis of our relationship. What Paul is saying, instead of coming to you as a superior, I'm coming to you as a peer to beg and plead for you to make the right decision. And that's the implication uh, of, I have the I have the authority to command you to do what is required. And that little phrase implies of, hey, what is proper? What is fitting? Uh, and the implication is that what Paul is going to ask of him is what is proper. And if what Paul is going to ask is what is proper and what's fitting, then the implication is if, if Philemon, if you do what I'm asking, you're going to do what is right before God. But if you don't do what I'm asking... You're not doing what's right before God. This is what is required. This is what is fitting in this situation. And Paul is saying, hey, because I love you, Philemon, because I care for you, I'm not going to pull the, the authority trump card, but I'm going to appeal on the basis of our relationship, which says a lot about the relationship between these two men, between Paul and Philemon. The, the trust that they had built where where Paul understands, hey, I don't need to use my authority here. I can just appeal to him. I know him. I know what he's going to do. I don't need to, to play authority if he'll do it just if I ask him. So he understood the nature of their relationship, and it also shows how close they were and how much trust Paul had in Philemon. We see that in verse 21 of the letter. Paul says, hey, I'm, I am confident of your obedience. I know that you're going to do the right thing. Philemon. That's what he is alluding to. Uh, and it's amazing to see here that a leader, not abusing power, but laying aside his power and authority. What do we constantly see in our world today? The abuse of power. Constantly. How often do we see news reports of so-and-so is doing this, or there's this scandal uh, in politics, or you know they, they're giving free benefits, or all, all of these things that take place with an abuse of authority and and humans always struggle with abuses of power have you noticed that because power and authority are always accompanied by a temptation to uh, abuse the authority that has been entrusted to us as we read in, in romans 13 every single authority has been placed there by who by god now, there's no authority in your life or anywhere in the world that has not been placed there by god but how many of those men use their authority, their God-given authority for the glory of God? They don't. The, the temptation is always to use uh, authority, power, and influence in a way that is ungodly, in, in a way that meets my desires, but not necessarily is what God wants me to do. The, the British historian Lord Acton, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, he's famous for saying that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to do what? corrupt absolutely that is what he says and he it's a simple observation that a person's sense of morality lessens 
whenever his or her power increases. We, we tend to lean upon that power and say, hey, you know what, I could appeal, but I could get this done a whole lot faster if I just say, hey, you need to do this, right? Just do it because I said so. That, that, that's far easier than making an appeal and waiting for them to, to come to the right conclusion. And there's a risk involved in an appeal, right? What's the risk? Well, they may not do what I want. But if I have the authority to command them, why would I, I, I know I can get what I want. I'll just command them. But Paul didn't do that here. He lays all of that aside. And that is often what we must do when we approach someone to make an appeal. That we may have authority, but we don't need to wield that authority in every single situation. There are many times and circumstances that we must approach a person in love rather than in power. Power and authority can influence outward actions. You you can tell your kids, hey, do this. Be here at this time. Uh, But only love can influence someone's heart. Power and authority, outward actions. You can force someone to do something, but you can't uh, control what they are feeling on the inside. And forgiveness, what Paul is appealing for here in this letter, is first and foremost an internal attitude. And then it's going to be a transaction. But if the attitude isn't there, that transaction is empty. Have you ever ever told somebody, hey, I forgive you, and then in your mind, what are you doing? You're just rehearsing, and you remain so bitter and so angry at them. Well, that's not really that's not really forgiveness. And you haven't really, you've said it verbally, hey, I forgive you, but in your heart, you're still rehearsing that, that sin that has been committed against you over and over. What Paul is is doing he he appeals he appeals according to love rather than according to power and authority because uh he's implying that hey this is the right thing to do and you need to do it i know that you'll do it i know that you that you love the lord and that you love others that's what we saw last week uh in the beginning of uh the letter and he appeals based upon love rather than in authority but we got to ask, which of these motives do you most often make an appeal with? What motivates you when you make an appeal? Or do you use love? Do you, do you play your authority as in a trump card? What is it you use? What manner do you make your appeals in? Do, do you come in love and, and leave, uh, put a decision on the table to somebody and say, Hey, I really want you to, to think about this. Uh, and I want to encourage you to to do this because this is the right thing, but this is your decision. You have to make a choice. We, or do you say, hey, here's the right thing to do and you need to do it. I'm requiring it of you. We have to understand how to approach someone in love and authority. And and we need wisdom on when to do this and when not, right? It's a fine balance because there's times where we need to step in uh, in authority and there's times where we just need to appeal in love. Uh, and we don't want to confuse those situations, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, uh, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You don't want to confuse those. You don't want to encourage the unruly, and you don't want to admonish the faint-hearted. Uh, you, you want to encourage them, and you want to admonish those who are unruly. We have to understand uh, situations. We need to exercise wisdom of, okay, is this... A situation where I need to act and come and make an appeal in love or make an appeal in authority. And a good question to ask ourselves when facing this predicament is, will the use of my authority in this situation benefit or harm our relationship in the long term? 
Will will my use of authority here damage our relationship or will it help our relationship? And if it's going to damage your relationship, then, hey, you just need to make that appeal. Uh, Pastor Pastor John Kitchen says that personal appeals may prove more powerful than authoritative commands. Uh, And that's what Paul understands and that uh, is what he is doing here with Philemon. That's the, that's the first essential of a godly appeal that we see in this paragraph. And the, and the second uh, is that a godly appeal abandons personal needs and agendas. We see this in the second half of verse 9 and then again in verse 13. Second half of verse 9, Paul says, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Uh, and in making this appeal, Paul is, is not going to just speak according to what is best for him. And then oftentimes when we make demands or when we want to resolve conflict, what is it we want? We want what we want. We want what is best for us. But Paul is coming and saying, hey, I'm going to lay aside my what's best for me. And we see this in how Paul describes himself. That, hey, he is he's an old man and he is in prison. Right, and the the words that he used here give us some hints on this. The words that he used for for old man typically describes somebody who is at least sixty years of age. So Paul's sixty years old, and he's got a lot of years on those years. Right, Second Corinthians talks about all that he has endured in ministry, years of being imprisoned, enduring difficult journeys by land and sea, facing persecution and hardship, as well as having just a great concern for all of the churches. All of this has weighed upon Paul. I would imagine that even though he might have uh, been 60 years old, he might have looked like he was 90 just because of all of the, the physical toll and the emotional stress of his position, what the Lord had called him to. So if he's if he is that uh, old and, and I would say maybe weak, it would be helpful to have Onesimus there with him, right? That would be helpful to have someone there with you while you're in prison. Yes, he has others there with him, but the more, uh, the better. Uh, for Paul. So there would have been a desire and and an advantage to keeping Onesimus with him in Rome rather than sending Onesimus back to Philemon. But then again, in in verse 13, he also says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul also says, hey, you know what? Uh, Philemon has been working right along, or Onesimus has been working right alongside me here in Rome, advancing the, the cause of the gospel, uh, and that has been good. And Philemon, I know that if you were here, you would want to you would want to serve right alongside me. And Paul says, "Hey, I, I, I would have liked to have kept Onesimus here, saying, oh, you know what? He'll just serve me on behalf of Philemon.' Philemon would do that, so maybe I'll just keep uh, his runaway slave, and he can stay here and serve me on his behalf." That was the uh, the thought of of Paul. The implication, but because uh, Onesimus uh, was a blessing to Paul, doesn't necessarily mean that Paul approached uh, with the goal of, hey, I just want what I want. Paul was willing to set aside his own needs, his own desires, his own agenda in order to do the right thing and send uh, this new believing runaway slave back to his believing master so that they could reconcile and be in submission to any law in the Roman Empire at that point in time. Now, usually when we try to resolve conflict, uh, we, we approach the conversation with an agenda, right? I, I want this other person to see how wrong they are and how right I am. 
Right? If we're honest, that's usually the agenda, right? I need this, I need my, my spouse or this other coworker to acknowledge that I am right and they are wrong. Right? How often do we say, oh, in my agenda, I need to, to make sure, uh, that they see that they're right. No, that's not usually our agenda. And, and when we come to, to a, a peace, uh, making conversation with that type of agenda, usually how does it work out? Have you ever tried to resolve conflict and more conflict was the result? You guys ever had a, conver- a conversation like that? It's because, yeah, you each, you each came with an agenda and it just exploded. The, the same sinful attitudes that started the conflict have continued the conflict. And what we see here is that if we're truly going to be serious about making peace, there's going to be times where we need to set aside our agenda and adopt a, and adopt a new agenda. When we appeal to somebody else for a godly response, we need to be willing to lay aside our own desires. We need to abandon our agenda and adopt the Lord's agenda. If you keep your finger here in Philemon and turn backwards over to Colossians, the book that we just studied. If you look at Colossians chapter 3 and understand that the letter to the Colossians was read immediately before this letter Philemon was read to the church. Written to the same church, to people in the church. And this letter would have been read read directly ahead of Philemon. So Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. Really a key verse. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. The command there to, to let the peace of Christ rule is the idea of let the peace of Christ umpire between you. Let the peace of Christ be the, the mediator, uh, the arbiter between you when there is conflict. So that when you, when you come to resolve conflict, you don't come with the agenda of, I want this person to acknowledge that I'm right. We come with the agenda of, I want Christ to be glorified. I want to pursue peace and Christ's definition of peace, not my definition of peace. And then you pray ahead of time, Lord, may your peace be the arbiter. May may your peace rule in our hearts. May your peace be the umpire between us as we discuss this right now. That is the agenda that we need to adopt as we pursue reconciliation. And that is the agenda that the Apostle Paul adopts here. To say, it would be great for Onesimus to still be with me. I'd have a helper when I'm here in prison and, uh, and I'm, I'm old, I'm tired, I've done all of this and uh, he's kind of tugging at the heartstrings of Philemon here. Say, hey, it would have been advantageous for me to keep Onesimus. And I said, hey, I didn't have to send him back. But let me, let me send him back to you because that is what is right in this situation. That is what will honor the Lord. So Paul set aside his own agenda to fulfill the Lord's agenda. That is what we need to be willing to do as well. And that is the second essential to to making a a God-honoring appeal, being willing to set aside what we want and adopting whatever the Lord would would want in this situation. Essential number three is seen in verses 10 and 11, that that a godly appeal builds upon gospel transformation. Look at the way Paul describes uh, Onesimus to Philemon. Now understand, when, when Philemon, uh, his last contact with Onesimus, how, how did he view Onesimus? His last understanding of, of who Onesimus was, was a, a thieving runaway. Okay? And now Paul is going to, to come and describe 
Onesimus in a completely different light. Look at what he says. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And did you notice again, Paul repeats that word appeal. He said it in verse 8, and now he says it again in verse 10. Hey, I'm, I'm appealing to you. And then did you notice before he even mentions Onesimus' name, how does he introduce Onesimus? I am appealing to you for my child. Right? That completely changes the conversation. And if you're Philemon, you're probably like, what? My runaway slave that stole from me? He's your child, Paul? How does that, how does that work? But that is what Paul says, those two little words. And, and what does he mean by that? My child. That phrase at the end of verse uh, 10, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You know, that Paul's not having a, a Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader type moment here where, you know, Onesimus, I am your father. He's not saying that. The implication is that Paul was the one to, to share the gospel with Onesimus. Paul is the one who shared the gospel and discipled Onesimus to the point where it is like Onesimus has become a, a child in the faith of Paul, a spiritual child to him. Uh, and that has involved a closeness in their relationship. Paul uh, says something similar in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 15, where he says that, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That there is now a spiritual relationship between these two men that has bound them together. Paul is the spiritual father of Onesimus, and he he makes a special emphasis of this point uh, in the word order uh, in the Greek. Of just Paul wants Philemon to understand how close he and Onesimus have become. If you look at verse twelve, how does how does Paul uh, speak of Onesimus? He says, "I'm sending like sending Onesimus to you is as if I'm I'm boxing up my heart and sending my heart to you." That, that is how strongly Paul felt for Onesimus. But simply saying, hey, that Onesimus is now his child in the faith, uh, that, that he came to, uh, to know Christ through uh, Paul's ministry, it's also going to have some other implications. Number one is that Onesimus has repented of his sin and turned to Christ in faith. Now, that he has become a, a believer. And this is the essence of the, of the gospel message. You don't become... Uh, the Apostle Paul's child in the faith without knowing Christ and understanding who he is and what he has done. Uh, and the fact that Onesimus has repented of his sin uh, is evident that he's coming back uh, and that Paul is referring to him as my child. That The message of the gospel, uh, of what we need to do in order to be in right standing with God, is a message of repentance and faith. Uh, it was the message that Jesus and the apostles proclaimed uh, in the early church during their ministries. Matthew 4.17, uh, right after Jesus is baptized, he goes, uh, says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus proclaimed a message of repentance. Say, Hey, world, you are estranged and separated from God because you have sinned against him. You need to turn from your sin and back to God. Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. This is what Peter, after preaching a sermon, the, the crowd, they say, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then later, Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching uh, in the city of Athens. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Paul points to Onesimus as a, a child in the faith, he's acknowledging to Philemon, hey, Onesimus is not the same man that you once knew. He is now a believer, a follower of Christ. And if and if Onesimus is now a follower of Christ, what, are, what does that mean? Well, the second implication, first, is that he has re- repented and believed in Christ. The second is that the grace of God has transformed Onesimus. When we believe, grace transforms us. We are no longer what we used to be. Amen? We can, we can say praise God for that. And that is what Paul is trying to communicate to Philemon. Onesimus is not the, the thieving runaway slave that you knew him to be. And he, he makes this obvious in verse 11. It says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And, and there's a little bit of a, a play on words here, okay? Because uh, in the in the first century, slave owners were allowed to name their slaves. So Onesimus was a was a common name because the name Onesimus literally means useful. That's what his name means. So now when Paul is saying, "Hey, he used to be useless to you." But now he is useful. He is this play on words here. And when he's saying, hey, he was useless. So imagine with me, if you were, if you were a slave at that point in time and you wanted to, uh, to subtly, uh, rebel against your master. You weren't like, I'm not at the point yet of where I want to run away. You may eventually get to that point and Onesimus eventually did. But if, if you have a, a difficult master and you're a slave who's unhappy, what would you do? You would work really, really slow. Or, or sabotage uh, whatever your employer is asking you to do. Uh, you just do this painstakingly slow. And I know parents, sometimes your teens do that, where teens, you have chores and you work so slow. And maybe if I just do this so poorly, I will never be asked to do it again. Uh, or kind of similar to the way that a, that a modern-day employee who's really unhappy with his job will, will, will just go so slow in his work because he's unhappy. He's angry. That's what, that's what slaves in the first century would do as well. And, and Paul's kind of acknowledging that. Hey, before when he was your slave, he might have been a little useless. But now he is useful. Now he is, he's different. He is a new man. That word useful is also used in 2 Timothy 2, 21. Paul writing his last letter to a young pastor. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, from what is dishonorable. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. This is useful to the master of the house, ready for good work. With the implication being, as he's speaking to Timothy, Timothy, cleanse yourself, pursue Christ, and you will be useful to God. And, and he says, he uses that same word to describe this runaway slave, Onesimus, saying, hey, he is now useful to you, Philemon, and then he also says that he's useful to Paul. Now, Paul's appeal to Philemon is to build upon the fact that grace has transformed Onesimus. 
that the Lord has worked in his life and he is fundamentally different from the person that he used to know. He's different from when he first ran away. He's been transformed. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in, uh, uh, if anyone believes in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That is the the truth here that Paul is building on. Hey, he's different. And and if you're Philemon, how do you know that Onesimus is different? Well, he's returned. He's come back. He's traveled a thousand miles from Rome to come back and to pursue reconciliation with the master that he ran away from and that he rebelled against. And when repentance and faith take place, those are, those are always the basis of our appeals. A repentance and faith is what we call others to when they are wandering from Christ. When we are going and appealing and asking others to forgive us, what's the basis of that appeal? I've repented. I'm, I've turned to Christ in faith. Now please forgive me. Repentance and faith are always the basis of our appeals. And when they do take place, God's grace transforms sinners. That we are transformed. We are no longer what we used to be because God has worked in our lives. And we need to be careful about uh, holding those grudges against people for past sins. Of understanding, hey, the grace of God has worked in their life and they are different. I don't need to treat them as if they, they're still that same person that they used to be. The grace of God can transform anyone and godly appeals will point to that transformation or call for that transformation in love. And that's the third essential that we see here. And then the fourth essential is going to be in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul is going to make this last uh, argument here. And and what we're going to see, essential number four, is that a godly appeal utilizes consent rather than compulsion doesn't force people into something, but it appeals for them to make a decision. As we've said, Paul is saying of, hey, well, I, I sent Phil- or Onesimus back to you even though it felt like I was sending my heart away. I would have been glad to keep him with me. And the, the idea there, the, the, the Greek text is stronger than the English uh, in our translation. It's, it's very strong. Paul had a strong impulse to just keep Onesimus with him in Rome. It wasn't just a fleeting thought. It was a a very strong desire that he had to to not send Onesimus back. But he was overcome. uh, That impulse was overcome by the principles of the matter. But I preferred not to do anything that would force your hand. I didn't want to, to compel you into this decision. I wanted you to give consent to this decision. So let's imagine just for a second, use our, our sanctified imaginations, of what would this letter have sounded like if... If Paul is writing to Philemon saying, hey, I have Onesimus and I'm just keeping him here with me. Maybe it's something like this. And this is, again, my sanctified imagination. Uh, and maybe a little bit of me in here. But uh, say, hey, hey, Philemon, uh, man, do I have an amazing God story to tell you. Do you remember that slave that you used to own, Onesimus? I ran into him here in Rome, uh, of all places. Well, I shared the gospel with him and he he believed. He's placed his faith in Christ and he's a new creation now. And he's actually been serving alongside me here 
for the for the advancement of the gospel. Philemon would have been shocked. What? But then Paul could have continued. I know there's a lot of bad blood between you two. I know he kind of sinned against you, stole all that stuff, and then ran away. Um, and, and so he he's been such a blessing to me here that I'm just going to keep him. Are you okay with that? Right? What what does he do if he, if he takes that tactic? What has he done? He's done what most teenagers do, right? They make a, a decision, uh, they make a commitment, and then they go and tell their parents, oh, by the way, I've committed to doing this. They, and in doing that, they force their, their hand, right? Uh, they make the commitment and then ask for permission later, or ask for forgiveness later. Uh, and, and that's what Paul could have done, right? He wasn't obligated to send Onesimus back. Say, I could, you know, Philemon, I know what you're gonna want me to, uh, to be served and to, to have Onesimus serve alongside me here. So I'm just gonna keep him here with me. But Paul doesn't do that. He, he wanted to specifically avoid that, of forcing Philemon's hand. He didn't want to act in a way that would compel him. He wanted his consent. And verse 14, he says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He didn't want, he says, hey, I want you to make a good decision, but I don't want to force that good decision upon you. I want you to come to the conclusion that that's the good decision and then choose that by your own free choice. This is very similar to kind of that that understanding if we are to appeal in love rather than in power. In his appeal to Philemon, he wanted to give him the freedom to make the right choice himself rather than compelling him. Paul understood that actions can be forced, but heartfelt decisions cannot. One pastor said that moral conformity may indeed be enforced, but moral goodness requires a change of heart. You can force people to do something, but you can't make them like it. right? And in our appeals to other people, we should never compel anyone to, to make a decision. And compelling is not the same as shepherding someone. Forcing somebody is not the same as an appeal. And, uh, and in an appeal, we want to, to come to them and, and we want to beg and implore. We want to try and persuade, but we must never try and manipulate them or force them into something. And that can work for a little bit, right? You, you, we've all uh, tried to use manipulation or been manipulated. Uh, and it works for a time. But what eventually happens to, to someone who's been manipulated or had decisions forced upon them on a regular basis? What eventually happens? Do we like that? You, you have that aha moment. Wait, that person manipulated me into, that salesman tricked me into buying that. Uh, I didn't need that. Uh, we all, we all understand what that manipulation fuels later on. And we can't try and manipulate people. Manipulation and compulsion work for a season, but they will never transform the human heart. And this fourth essential is also important because by utilizing consent rather than compulsion, what happens? We reveal someone's heart. When you give someone the freedom and a choice, they will reveal what's really taking place in their heart, what they really think, what they really desire. And that's what Paul is able to do here with Philemon. When you make this appeal, uh, truth is going to be revealed. People will reveal what they truly love, what they truly think. And, And... and parents, this is this is particularly important for you guys. Uh, as your as your children get older, uh, you, you wield less and less authority in their life, and you wield more and more influence. Right? When you're, uh, my son is one years old right now, and when when he's disobeying, I can just pick him up, 
right? I can, I can pick him up and move him to where he needs to be or just hold him. But you can't do that with your 15 year old unless you're just really, really strong. Uh, and, and you may move their physical body, but what are they doing on the inside? They're in absolute anger, frustration, rebellion. So you have to, to make this gradual shift in, in how you wield your authority. You're gonna exercise your power less and less and influence more and more. You're gonna make more and more appeals and love to say, hey, you need to, this is the decision. Here's gonna be the consequences if you choose this way or this way. Now you need to decide. Uh, and parents, you need to, to give your kids freedom and then shepherd them according to the choice that they make. Because again, you give them the freedom and then what do you know? Their choice is gonna reveal what? their heart. And then you get to shepherd their heart. Then you get to say, hey, why did you choose that? And do you see the consequences of that? Now let's look at this. Let's look at what the Bible says. And I would appeal to you. God would appeal to you to make the right decision. There, there's so many parenting principles here, but I don't. it's not only applicable only to parents. Again, all of these appeals of understanding, there, we have more relationships where we don't wield any authority than those that we have authority. Uh, and those relationships that we don't have any authority, we make an appeal. Or we come and ask somebody, we appeal to them, we beg and implore them to make a right decision because that is what they need to do. And they alone will, will endure the, the consequences. But this morning as we've looked at these, these verses, we've examined Paul's appeals to Philemon and we, we've seen these four big essentials of, of a God-honoring appeal. Right, that, that a godly appeal approaches in love rather than in power, that it abandons personal needs and agendas, it builds upon gospel transformation, and it utilizes consent rather than compulsion. And as we, as we wrap up our discussion of appeals, a couple things need to be noted. This is not a checklist for you to require other people to meet all of these things if they come and appeal to you. Okay, so parents, it's not like, oh, I don't have to listen to my kids making an appeal because they didn't do this or this or this. This isn't a checklist for that. This is instructions for how we need to go and make appeals to others. Secondly, we are never in control of other people's responses. That's not our responsibility. What we are called to do in Scripture is to go and make an appeal, right? Uh, but typically, what is it that that little voice in our head talks us out of making an appeal? What, what's usually the argument that we make to ourselves? The reason that we don't go and make an appeal is because we say, I know how they're going to respond. I don't need to do that. They're going to reject it anyway. Say, well, in Scripture, we don't, we don't act according to how other people might respond. We act according to what God has commanded us to do. So we are called to go and make an appeal to somebody else to plead with them to turn back to Christ, to pursue righteousness and holiness. And we leave the the response up to the Lord. It's that person's responsibility, uh, and we, we that's why we plead for them. This is clearly seen uh, in the Old Testament. If you, if you turn back to one of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel. If you look with me at Ezekiel 33, right after after Isaiah and Jeremiah, there'll be the, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 Verses 1 to 6. Ezekiel is his prophet. Listen to what the Lord says to Ezekiel. He says, The word of the Lord came to me. He says, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, 
Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He's saying, hey, the watchman's duty is to announce the coming, to, to make an appeal. Hey, we need to get ready to be on defense because there's soldiers coming. That's the responsibility of the watchman. If he goes and, and blows the trumpet, then those who don't respond, whose responsibility is it? It's theirs. But he continues. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The Lord's saying, hey, then if, if the watchman sees sees the danger and then makes no warning, who's responsible? The watchman. Right. We see this in the Old Testament in this passage and others. And then over and over again in the New Testament, we see, hey, as as those who have believed the gospel, we have also been commissioned to share the gospel, to go proclaim the gospel to others. Which means, hey, we are to be just like that watchman. We go and announce uh, the, the coming judgment of God, but also the hope that we have in Christ. We go and announce that. Are we responsible for how people will receive that message or reject that message? No, that's not in our hands. We just simply announce. And oftentimes we just need to make an appeal, regardless of whether or not we think that they will reject it. And we need to do away with that, that lie that we tell ourselves of, oh, I would go to them, but I know how they'll respond. We don't know how they'll respond. Right? The Lord, God's grace is able to transform hearts. Why would we try and limit what God, God's grace can do in someone else's heart? We need to just go and make an appeal, regardless of how somebody might respond, because then we can act with a clear conscience. And even unbelievers understand the importance of making an appeal, no matter how it may be received. Prior to, prior to World War II, did you know that, that Mahatma Gandhi decided to write a letter to Adolf Hitler appealing to him, asking him to, to avoid the path that they were on. This is, this is what Mahatma Gandhi wrote to Adolf Hitler. He says, Dear friend, friends have been urging me to write to you for the sake of humanity, but I have resisted their request because of the feeling that any letter from me would be an impertinence. Something tells me that I must not calculate and that I must make my appeal for whatever it may be worth. It is quite clear that you are today the one person in the world who can prevent a war which may reduce humanity to a savage state. Must you pay that price for an object, however worthy it may appear to you to be? Will you listen to the appeal of one who has deliberately shunned the method of war not without considerable success. Anyway, I anticipate your forgiveness if I have erred in writing to you. I remain your sincere friend, M.K. Gandhi. See, it's interesting, right? Gandhi understood, hey, I, Hitler may not respond, Hitler may not listen, but what did he feel that he needed to do? He needed to go and make an appeal. He needed to go and plead, say, please, don't do what you're doing. And we need to understand that we are called to make those types of appeals to others. That we go and appeal for, for a couple to reconcile. 
We go and appeal for, for someone to turn away from sin and turn back to Christ. We go and appeal to somebody who has been in rebellion against God and rejected Christ. We go and appeal to them in love, without an agenda, building upon the gospel, utilizing consent, not compulsion. And we go, and the fact that we go and make an appeal is an exercise, a demonstration of our faith in the grace of God, that God is able to transform hearts and minds. And may we exercise faith by going and making appeals to others according to what we've seen here in Philemon. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you that you are the greatest peacemaker. Lord, you are the one who has made peace with mankind through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the reconciliation that we have through him. And Lord, I pray now that you would help us to be peacemakers, that you would help us to be ambassadors, that you would help us to reconcile in our own relationships, to con- to confess sin, to appeal for forgiveness when we have sinned against others. And Lord, may you give us the courage to go and appeal to others who are in sin, who are wandering away from Christ. Help us to do that in love. Help us to do that setting aside our own agenda. Help us to to believe the best and then just make that appeal and leave the results up to you. And Lord, as as we do that, as we are obedient in making the appeals, may you use us just as instruments in your hands to, to win the lost, to reconcile those around us, and ultimately to bring peace and unity to your church. Lord, we ask and pray these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Reconciler. Amen.